0: Hello and welcome to how to talk to kids about anything where we give you the tips, scripts, stories and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, all children, regardless of their genetics, are at some risk for substance abuse. According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, teen drug addiction is the nation's largest largest preventable and costly health problem despite the existence of proven preventative strategies 9 out of 10 adults with substance use disorder report that they began drinking and taking drugs before age 18 Now we have some room to grow that particularly refers to us in relation to this podcast. According to Columbia University's Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, CASA, between 75 to 87% of parents talk at least a little about nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana, but just 50 to 60% talk about other drugs such as heroin, amphetamines, and abuse of prescription medications. So we can make a difference with bringing this topic to the forefront. But what do we say? what can we do to help create a supportive open environment where substance abuse and the stressors surrounding it are not hidden in a closet where drinking and drug use can be triggered and take hold for this conversation we have jessica leahy on who has been with us before when talking about the gift of failure and this time on addiction and addiction inoculation Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, and mom. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Atlantic, and is the author of The New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She is a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the curriculum for the Emmy-nominated Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She lives in Vermont with her husband, two sons, three dogs, and two cats, and her new book is entitled The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. So welcome, Jess, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is such a fun topic. I love talking about how to talk to kids. Yes. Well, I love them. I I guess it's the point more than anything else. Yes.
0: I really enjoyed reading your book because you really kept, kept an eye on that aspect of how to talk to your kids about these really interesting and important pieces of information around addiction and about drugs and alcohol. And I think that so many of us think back to you know, the after school special and, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 1980s and Nancy Reagan and her, you know, just say no. And and I don't know how far we've come from there. But before we sort of, I mean, now we're like really in a good position with your book. But I think like before this, we may need, Mm -hmm. I think we needed some help. So before we dive really into this, I, I think we need to kind of position you as to where you you came from um, with this topic. So for those who haven't read anything about this, haven't read your book, don't know Mm -hmm. where you came from with regard to this topic, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what sent you on this path to talk about drug and alcohol abuse and addiction inoculation?
1: So I've been working for, with kids for a long time. My entire adult career really has been in various forms around kids and, and for 20 years teaching you know, every grade from six to 12. And then the last five years of my teaching career, I was working part-time. I couldn't teach full-time anymore, so I was teaching part-time in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. And the reason I landed there was that when I was about a year into my recovery, um, I'm an alcoholic and I have, um, by the time the book comes out, I'll be just coming up on almost on eight years wow. of recovery and Congrats. so excited about, thank mm-hmm. you. I'm so excited about that. I actually, um, it's been just a, an amazing, very cool, um, journey. I've learned a lot about myself, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, A year in uh, I went to go speak at this rehab um, and mainly just to be in the same room with a bunch of kids in recovery because adolescent recovery is actually pretty different from Mm. adult recovery Mm. just in terms of trajectory and how it works and stuff like that I mean the tools are similar but they're applied differently and So I went to go speak to the kids and I sort of realized looking around I'm like wait a second If you guys have to be here 24 7 you have to go to school here and I realized Mm -hmm. wait a second There's an education program here so I almost immediately started working there and did that for five years, so Mm -hmm. Given my background as someone who has been in recovery for a while, given my background as someone who's worked with kids in recovery for a while, and as the parent of two kids who came out of me with Mm -hmm. a higher than normal risk of, you know, an increased risk of substance abuse, um, suffering from substance abuse during their lifetime, my, I'm so glad you mentioned at at the top of this, that um, substance abuse is referred to as a preventable Mm -hmm. disease disorder Mm -hmm. situation, whatever you want to refer to it as, depending on what camp you're in. Um, But I just wanted to know what that meant. Mm. When you say Mm. substance abuse, when someone says substance abuse is preventable, well, what is that? Like, what works? What doesn't work? Does that? Is it different for someone whose kids are at higher risk? Mm. Is it, you know, Mm. what is that? And I'm, a huge research geek. I love just diving into the research. So it took me about a year to get to the point where I could even write the proposal for this book. Mm -hmm. And then it took me another two years to write the book after that. And uh, it's been, it's been, I've learned so Mm -hmm. much. It's Mm -hmm. amazing where we are in terms of research around substance abuse and about understanding what it looks like in adolescence in particular, and what we have to do in order to inoculate our kids as much as possible um, from, you know, having to deal with substance. Well, there's two prongs here. From getting started, because there's issues around just substance mm-hmm, use and the mm-hmm, adolescent mm-hmm. brain, and then there's preventing substance abuse during their lifetime.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I, I so appreciate you bringing the research into it, but also your personal story. I, It's very engaging. You bring in stories about Uh, the kids that you've met and the people that you remember from high school, uh, your own information and your own story. And in your book, you start off, yes, with your story and some research-based realizations that you just sort of alluded to, which I just want to kind of go into just a little bit more that you're you're saying that the brains of children and adolescents function differently than those Mm -hmm. of adults. And the younger kids are, when they start using drugs and alcohol, the more damage they can do to their brains, uh, the more likely they are to develop substance use disorders as adults. So can you paint the picture of what some of the risk factors are, since you've alluded to one of them, which, you know, that your children came out of you, and you mm-hmm. had uh, an issue, and, and you have a long lineage of that. Mm-hmm. So what As are some of husband, those? my husband,
1: by the way. Oh. So they get it, a barrel. They're double barrels on both sides okay. of the so, okay, So um, yeah, genetics is a piece of it, and it's a piece that we definitely need to talk about, but there are lots of other risk factors that have nothing to do with genetics.
0: Yes, and I want to know all about it. I mean, my kids, we adopted both of my kids, and they definitely have some substance abuse in their lineage and while I don't know of any in mine that's not my reality right Mm -hmm. because they didn't come out of me they came out of who they came out of our fabulous birth parents so I do need to know all of those that those pieces of information as well so I was very eager to read your book
1: well and I'm so glad you put it that way because one of the things, I, there are two things I don't want parents to hear or to expect or to think that this book is about like, okay, this person who's now a teetotaler is going to be all judgy about drinking. I am not at all. I, I There's some fabulous new books that are just coming out now between um, Michael Pollan's book about psychedelic use in adults and the, you know, the very real possibilities for using it in ways that can really help us. Um, Substance abuse, or sorry, substance use in adults is a completely different topic than substance use in adolescence, mm-hmm. because substance uh, uh, the adult the adult brain is done maturing, growing, developing, connecting, um, and lots of substances have you know very light tread lightly on the adult brain. It's you know there it's clearly there there are risks, but nothing like what we're talking about during adolescence. Mm-hmm. So please don't think that I'm saying oh no drugs and alcohol for anybody. That's not true at all, and I go into that uh, quite a bit in the book. Also we you refer to understanding your child's risks Mm -hmm. as a good thing as a part of understanding sort of just what you know what you need to know about your children and you know the fact that for example also adoption is a risk factor yes Um, it's being talked about more and more often as a risk factor if you read you know there's the there's starting at the beginning there's sort of genetics I start there Mm -hmm. because that's what I think about a lot and that tends to be like 50 to 60 percent of the picture right there That's the understanding we have right now and then there's this um there's this analogy that i partially hate and partially have to agree is just really apt which is that genetics is sort of like the bullet that you load into Mm -hmm. a gun and um and trauma is the trigger so trauma when i talk about trauma whether i'm talking about big t trauma or little t trauma or you know stress and toxic stress what i'm mostly talking about are the adverse childhood experiences, as articulated by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, which you know you can take that quiz yourself whenever you'd like. Just Google uh, CDC and ACEs quiz, mm-hmm. ACE, yes. lowercase. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also read Nadine Burke Harris's fantastic book, *The Deepest Well*, and in that book she expands on that list of sort of the core adverse childhood experiences and adds on. You know, there's separation and divorce, there's adoption, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of things that kids that can affect the way not only just their emotional state, but can implica- that can involve what's called epigenetics, which is yes. the way our environment uh, affects the way our genes actually express in our bodies. It doesn't change our genes, it changes the way they express. So there's yes. genetics, there's trauma, big, and t, little, big T and little t trauma, and stress and things like that. Then there's also things like um, academic failure, uh, aggression towards other children. If your child is expressing a- aggression towards other kids, that's something we really need to get into and uh, and do some intervention on. Another one is social ostracism. And you can start to see how some of these risk factors can get inextricably tangled up in each yes, other. for because- sure. If you have early academic failure or early aggression toward other children, that can very easily morph into and turn into, you know, social ostracism as well. So the earlier we intervene on these things, the better. And you know, given that uh, I I have to acknowledge that it's really really difficult to get early interventions for everything we need early interventions for. So I try to go to as many sources as possible in the book and give guidance around where we can Mm -hmm. find those interventions. So essentially, and I think about it as like one of those old-timey scales of justice scales where risk is on one side and prevention is on the other. And the heavier your risk side, the heavier your protection side is going to need to be. And I really do view that risk side and understanding what's on that side of the scale as empowering. I can't be ashamed of it. I can't be, um, I can't feel guilty about it. It's like, you know, if I just sit here and wallow in the fact that I gave my kids this horrible hand around their genetics, I'm not gonna be proactive at all in terms of dealing with this stuff. So I wanna banish shame from this conversation. I wanna banish guilt from this conversation. I want us to pick up from where we are acknowledge what's going on with us, with our family, with substance abuse in our family, with our own drinking habits, and move forward from a place of empowerment, um, as opposed to, you know, a place of shame. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most powerful thing we can do, which is why I'm so grateful for the way you're talking about your own children's individual risk.
0: Oh, well, thank you for that. You know, it's if you just brush it under the rug, it doesn't do any good. I mean, it's still, well, and there. if you do even
1: worse, <laughs> which is gaslight your children by telling them that what they're viewing and seeing and understanding and feeling in their own home um, is not what they should be feeling in their own home. Mm -hmm. For example, I had a parent that was an alcoholic. She's in recovery now. Um, That to me being told that what I was perceiving in my world was not what I was perceiving in my world. And I just need to just ignore it. That is really damaging to kids Mm. that gaslighting kids is so emotionally damaging. And it's led to a lot of stuff that I've had to work through as an adult in terms of trust and being angry about it and all that other stuff mm-hmm.
0: um mm-hmm. so i think
1: being as clear-eyed as possible um just from the get-go is is the best thing we can do for kids i
0: think sometimes my kids are like maybe i it would be nice to have a mother who doesn't like to talk about all these things all the time <laughs> Like, oh god here <laughs> we go yeah. yeah my
1: high school age son he said he had a human biology class last semester in school and the teacher was just curious and took a poll and said how often, or do your parents ever talk to you about drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol? <laughs> and my son was like, when does she not yes. talk to us? But the key thing about that is, and I was talking to someone yesterday about this, it's like, quote, the sex conversation. I know, oh, There isn't right. just one sex conversation, no. right? And the more often we have them, the easier they become. Yes. It, it's, if you start really early and you're starting with general health topics and you're going with the developmental sort of flow yes they're really not scary conversations and the more normalized the conversations are the easier it's going to be to broach that topic yes
0: i i I was reading your book the the other day and i don't know if you saw this but i had posted on instagram that my son walked in he's like um Oh you're reading And I, I was like Yeah I'm reading a book about And he's like Sex Because he's just So <laughs> used to me Like I, just, I was writing The chapter for my book On sex And so He was used to me Right, like, re- And it's just so Commonplace <laughs> now I'm like No addiction But like It was just You know He's <laughs> what, 10 years what, old It's
1: about addiction you Yes know. <laughs> This one's about
0: addiction So get ready Now um, <laughs> And we do talk about it A great deal yeah. Given Given their lineage So yeah. So when talking about about drugs and alcohol with parents, I've often heard people say the phrase, oh, mine would never, you know, dot, 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 mm-hmm. do that, this, that, and the other thing. And you have a chapter devoted to the not my kid mentality mm-hmm. um, that can be a real barrier to conversation mm-hmm. in, in everything. I mean, you just mentioned right. the sex conversation, and I've had conversations with friends of mine and I'd be like, you know, talking about something that maybe my son said or my daughter said related to, you know, a question about sex or whatever. And they're like, oh, we haven't done that yet. You know, he's only 12 or 13. He doesn't need to have that conversation. (laughs) And I'm like, "Okay, so we're sort of in that same camp, right? Like the not my kid. They don't really need to know about it. Sort of idea. And it puts a barrier to this conversation. And and it makes it so we have trouble seeing problems before they become overwhelming, you know, giving information before they need it. In truth, mm-hmm. there's some sobering statistics that you mentioned. You say addiction exists in all ethnicities, socioeconomic groups, and kids consume over 10% of alcohol sold in this country. Wow. In any given month, 8% uh, of 8th graders and 33% of 12th graders of middle of American middle and high school students drink some alcohol. 10% take some illegal drug, eighteen percent drink enough to count as a binge, and eight uh, percent drive after drinking. One in five has have, have been in a car with another person who has been drinking. And, and here's the sort of, you know, whop in the head that research reveals a steady increase in the numbers of kids who've become addicted between the ages of 12 and 18. And their first mm-hmm. use typically happens in seventh or eighth grade, which wallops me in the head because yeah. my, my daughter's in middle school. My son will be in middle school next year. so. How can we tip the scales and amplify the protective factors, whatever they may be? I'd love you to talk about that, that can help to put our kids on a health the healthy side of those statistics.
1: Okay, so I, I'd like to start with one of my favorite topics, which is reframing and helping kids understand um, the truth about the data. So you just said some some things. You just uh, you know talked about some data, and you said, "Wow!" And you know these numbers are higher than I thought. But let's also think about it in terms of kids' perception. Of if mm-hmm. you ask kids mm-hmm. h- about the kids around them, are they drinking? Or you know that there's that you know oh everybody does it yes. kind of thing. Well. If you know, if we know that, for example, by the end of eighth grade, only twenty-four percent of kids talk uh, report having had more than a sip of alcohol, the answer to the the, the rejoinder, the the inoculation to um, helping kids be inoculated to sort of that that assertion, everyone's doing it. We also refer to them as refusal skills. Mm-hmm is no, actually, that's not true. Only a quarter of kids Mm. by the end of eighth grade. That's not everybody doing it at all. And Mm. so the cool thing about having real information is, number one, we know that real information and giving kids honest, true, real information about how many people are doing it and um, how they can refuse it. Inoculation theory is this really powerful tool where we found out that, it turns out that when we protect kids against one high-risk behavior, um, we actually, it generalizes and we protect them against other high-risk behaviors. So talking to kids, giving kids refusal skills around drugs and alcohol, for example, or you know throwing themselves off of a garage into a pool mm. or engaging in early sex or whatever, mm-hmm. um, all of these topics uh, uh, against, all of these risk high-risk behaviors, we can actually inoculate against other ones as well. Mm. There's so cool that it's generalizable but when we give refusal skills give kids refusal skills or do this inoculation theory with them not only this is so cool not only are they does it increase their feelings of self-efficacy about their ability to refuse these things. They are also in the end, more likely to use these refusal skills. And in the coolest part, they're more likely to talk to their parents about the fact that they use these these refusal skills. So not only does it open up communication, it increases the chances that they will refuse and it helps them feel in control of their ability to refuse. And it's pretty similar actually for me anyway to the fact that no matter how secure I'm feeling in my sobriety, I always have an exit strategy when I go to a party Mm -hmm, or a dinner mm -hmm. thing. And my husband and I just sort of have some signals. And if I'm done and I'm feeling just, you know, there's a lot of booze going on in the room and I don't necessarily feel tempted, but I just don't, feel great about being there, you know, we go and helping kids. In fact, in the book, I give scripts for like things to help kids see things that they can say um, in order to refuse. And some of them are just downright practical having to do with like, I can't, I'm taking an antibiotic and I'm not supposed to drink and take the antibiotic or, you know, I'm I'm Asian and I have this genetic predisposition for this weird thing that happens when I drink alcohol, my skin flushes and I'm kind of allergic to it. And my son
0: has celiac. So I so appreciated you saying it. I mean, we are like, instead of just saying to him, you know, you, you can't, drink because this will, you know, obviously this will happen with related to beer and and a lot of the other ones, barley, blah, 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 where I, he, I can help him to use that as, as this inoculation uh, messaging so that he has an out for anything that he wants to have an out with.
1: My son used to, my older son actually used to throw me under the bus and say, Mm -hmm. you know, my mom is an alcoholic. It's just not my thing. And you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, cool. Yeah, perfect. Please use me. me. (laughs) Please use me. And, you know, it's, it's just anyway so there's the idea that when we give kids real information and we give them real data we help them understand you know I talk about all kinds of things in the book that I found out for example um, kids tend to overestimate the investment the emotional need the amount of drink drinking that other kids do so other kids sort of interest in alcohol they tend to exaggerate that in their own minds Mm -hmm. it's a percept it's a problem of perception we tend to do it in general if we were to ask a kid how much do you think your your friends drink they will overestimate that amount. And they will also overestimate how upset, for example, their college roommates would be if they were invited to uh, an event that had no alcohol. So you can see Mm -hmm. this horrible self-fulfilling cycle we've got Mm -hmm. where kids are overestimating the amount that other kids drink. If you're a boy, you're more likely actually to increase your use in order to match that that erroneous Mm -hmm. perceived Mm -hmm. norm. And if you're a girl, you're more likely to withdraw socially if you don't wanna drink and you and you don't wanna be a part of that. The other problem is is that for example with college, it means that colleges aren't offering sober events. They're not mm-hmm. offering, you know, alcohol-free events because they overestimate the amount that, you know, oh, no one will come if there's not alcohol here. Mm-hmm. And so we're creating a situation in which we're setting ourselves up to um, continue to propagate this whole, you know, well, everyone drinks at college, it has to be a part of every single function, that kind of thing. Um, and yet, you know, there there is hope. And the hope lies with giving kids real, actual information, including information about how their brains work, what alcohol does in an adolescent brain that it doesn't necessarily do in an adult brain, and what drugs do in an adolescent brain that they don't necessarily do in an adult brain, and giving them real control and ownership of the information so that it's It's theirs so that they have increased feelings of self-efficacy around their understanding of drugs and alcohol and what it what the damage that it does to adolescents that um, if they just delay, they if they if we just delay, if we can get kids just to delay till 18, Mm -hmm. we get them to the point where their lifelong risk of substance use disorder is around 10 percent, which is what it is in the general population. Mm -hmm. So that so. You know, ideally, I would love it if we could get kids to early 20s, because that's when their brains are done developing. But realistically, if if we can get kids to 18, we can significantly, we can cut their risk of lifelong substance use disorder by a ton. Mm -hmm. In middle school, it's around 50%. Um, If we can get them to 10th grade, it's about, I think, 17%. And if we can get them to 18, um, the 18 years old, then it goes down to about 10%. Mm -hmm. So delay, Mm -hmm. delay, delay. Protect the brain and delay in terms of Likelihood of substance use disorder.
0: So I I love that we're we're talking about how to talk about this I think that is so key because the people who are listening to this really want to be able to dive into these conversations Um, and you mentioned that you know, a lot of these kids are really getting their—I'll call it like—more relied on information from the most unreliable sources, and, and <laughs> you just—you know—brought brought it up. Like everybody's doing it, you know. Um, and you urge parents to talk about drugs and alcohol and substance abuse, you know, and 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 they. Obviously, they're not big conversations. They're what I call micro-conversations, just, right. you know, right. all over the place, whenever, sort of here, there, and everywhere. And we can talk about the topic, you know, in, in different places, but the the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, CASA, that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. re- reveals that more dinners per week that you have, right, right that, that kids have with their families, they're less likely to drink. I love that statistic. And you actually kind of tease that out a little bit more saying that 33% of kids who eat zero to two times per week with their family use alcohol I mean really and but uh, those who eat dinner five to seven times per week with family, that statistic is cut in half. That's huge. So yeah. whether- well,
1: and keeping in mind, of course, I'm married to a statistician. And so every single time I look at these statistics, right. I have to say, how much of that is correlation? How much of that is causation? How, you know, yes. kids who are in an unstable home environment, of course, would be less likely to have dinner more times per right. week, and of course, would be more likely to use. And I also want to point out, I also don't want parents to feel bad about this because I think family dinner is emblematic of something
0: else. It's mm. emblematic of time
1: face-to-face looking in each other's exactly. eyes.
0: And it could be uh, breakfast, it could be in the car. Dinner. You know, right. you're driving right. in the car with your kid for 45 minutes to something, you know, that's it just as good. You're just right. being together. But so it doesn't have to be the dinner table. I think it's, you're exactly right. It needs to be just time together. So when you're with your kid, For a certain amount of time, how can we then start these conversations about drugs and alcohol? And what topics would you say we should definitely cover over a period of time?
1: oh so this starts really early and you know let's say we're talking with and keeping in mind of course that the best most evidence-based proven effective uh, substance use disorder substance abuse sorry substance abuse substance use and abuse really prevention programs start really young and they're really they just look like really good social emotional learning programs with health components Mm -hmm. so um you know when you're talking to really really little kids you're talking to them about the things we put in our bodies and the things we don't put in our bodies. Mm. Why do we spit out the toothpaste and not swallow it? Why do we not eat the soap? Why do we not eat Tide Pods? Why does this prescription bottle sitting here on the counter have mommy's name on it and not mm. daddy's name? Mm. Why mm. can't daddy just take mommy's pills mm. if he needs the same medication? And, you know, to having conversations about, you know, like, mm. because mommy's body is not the same as daddy's body, you weigh two different amounts, blah, 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 mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Those kind of conversations... You know, elide over time into things like, so we need to talk about what's in the medicine cabinet. Here are the things that are reasonable for you to use, and here are the things that are not for you to use because they're not prescribed to you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know a huge number of parents the vast majority of parents know that kids tend to get their first opioids if they're going to use opioids they tend to get them from their own medicine Mm. cabinets or medicine cabinets of friends and yet only 10 percent of parents are talking to their Mm. kids about that Mm. so having these conversations when they start really young uh you know it makes it easier to sort of take the stakes up as we go along. I happen to find that a lot of really great conversations come out of what's on the radio, what's happening mm-hmm. on television. Um, there's so many exposures um, to drugs and alcohol on television and uh, you know I like to use the fact that for example adolescents do not enjoy being manipulated they oh, really yes. so I love having conversations about advertising mm-hmm. and they think it's funny too about like what is being advertised yes. here do you know
0: they use shoe polish on those hamburgers <laughs> when they're presenting <laughs> well, to you not like
1: that, not that, things. Like, what are they really selling here like yes. are they selling a beer are they selling like that you're going to have all these pretty model friends right. and be able to be on a beach together on, on a weekend Day the not a, <laughs> Right, exactly. So and especially if your kid is involved and a huge uh, um, viewer of sports,
0: because mm-hmm. sports marketing,
1: in fact, FIFA is one of the worst offenders having to do with uh, drugs and alcohol, well, alcohol and, and sports marketing. Mm-hmm. So and in cartoons could see alcohol used in cartoons and talking about how alcohol is being portrayed. Is it being portrayed mm-hmm. as something that you can have with your friends that elevates, you know, a happy time? Or is it portrayed as something that someone needs at the end of the day to cope with their life?
0: Mm. These
1: are two very different um and it's pretty clear that and this is in the college chapter, that depending on how a kid drinks, that's a big indicator of whether or not it might become a problem versus it's a situational thing that is probably not an issue as or is less likely to be an issue. Mm -hmm. So having those kind of conversations are great. In the peer chapter I talk about this a Law because um you know, a big risk factor for substance abuse is if a kid's friends Mm -hmm. use substances. Right. I don't know, that sounded a little too black and white to me and Mm -hmm. I'm a questioning kind of person and so I looked into that, especially since my son had a friend who was thrown out of school Mm -hmm. for
0: substance
1: use, thrown out of three schools for three. Yeah, it was a really
0: interesting story you put in there. Yes.
1: And we had so many really productive conversations about not just what it means to be a good friend, what, um, he got out of this friendship. Like, why are you sticking with this? Mm -hmm. Um, whereas my instinct is like, run, run Mm -hmm. fast in Mm -hmm. the other direction. Don't be friends with this kid. Mm -hmm. Um, As it turns out, I think my son's relationship with this boy who's featured in the book, and by the way, his Mm -hmm. real name is Brian. He felt very, Georgia and Brian are their real names in the Mm, book. Okay. Because they felt very, very strongly that now that they are adults and they've had some space from this, that this telling these stories is what's going to make it easier for other young adults. It's wonderful. Yes. So Brian is actually now, um, his goal is to open his own, um, recovery facility for adolescents. I saw that
0: real great. Yeah.
1: You know, having a lot of conversations about what Ben, my son, Ben got from his relationship with Brian, what he felt he offered Brian. And in the end, I think this relationship was a huge protective factor for my kid, as well as something that really played an instrumental role in Brian getting and sticking with help. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, it's, imperative for us as parents to find your openings where you can find them The media whether that's when you know seeing uncle jerry have to go outside to mm. smoke a cigarette because grandma won't let him smoke in the house and why is that what is it that you know makes it so that we would kick someone outside if they're smoking that kind of thing is those are all natural places to find these conversations
0: so i could imagine you would have felt sort of i mean alarmed as you were mentioning like you're saying like you run run from that kid yeah. like you know yeah. and and i think parents also can sometimes feel really ineffective during the middle school and high school years as as peers become so much more the center of the of our kids lives peer pressure their influence is is so much stronger so how would you say then we can how can we encourage healthy peer groups. And then what do we say or do when we wind up with the knowledge like you did, uh, that one of our children's friends is involved with drugs or underage drinking or partying or other really, you know, at risk behavior?
1: So our first instinct, as mine was, in fact, my son, my older son was friends with someone from elementary school, a kid that I could just tell Mm -hmm. really loved risk,
0: Mm. really. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, this kid had a broken bone every time I turned around. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is bad. Mm. This is going to be a kid who is going to be, you know, more likely to uh, drink and drive, more likely to take unnecessary risks. And we know from the research that kids. Um, when kids are around other kids, they tend to take risks that they might not take when they're on their own, especially in this case, when they're around someone who's willing to take more risks. Mm -hmm. Um, so my instinct there was to, you know, was to shut that down and just sort of push my kid to say, no, 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 this kid can't be your friend. Well, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Number one, I think at the time the kids were like seven, I'm just forecasting out 10 years. (laughs) But the other problem is the minute, if, if I had said to Ben, Brian, you cannot be friends with Brian anymore. Number one, that's illogical. They're, they were on the same cross-country team. They are mm-hmm. in all their classes together. It mm-hmm. just it didn't make any sense. Number two, that would be about the fastest way for me to push Ben toward this kid because, you know, mom says no. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that this did for me was to help me understand the power of having a lot of conversations, using this as a way to have a lot of conversations without being obnoxious and obsessive about it. We did. I I did bring it up from time to time. Um, If my son didn't bring it up, I brought it up from time to time Um, and continuing because that's an evolving situation. Right. Mm -hmm. Brian's coming and going out of my son's life. And that's an evolving conversation, having conversations about the, what a kid gets from a given relationship. Mm -hmm. Often if a kid is using drugs and alcohol and having problems with drugs and alcohol often, and I can speak for myself, I became a lot less fun to be around. I became more stressful to be around. Mm. I was, you know, when we get deep into the weeds of our own use or abuse in my case, um, there's more lying there's more you know it's just it's bad Mm -hmm. and being friends with me becomes really hard became really Mm -hmm. difficult and being my spouse got more difficult and Mm so if I can say to my son you know look what what is it you're getting out of your relationship at this point because when you come home from hanging out with this kid you just don't seem as happy Mm -hmm. as you used to and then modeling for them that you that your relationships are rooted in you know for example since I got um since I got sober, one of my best friends does this thing for me. Almost every time we're going to the same event together, she'll call ahead to make sure that there's non-alcoholic drinks available mm. to make. Because that's, that's so the thoughtful. way of showing me that she loves me and that she supports me. And sometimes she doesn't even tell me that she did it. Mm-hmm. And to me, talking about that is really important with my kids because that's, having a friend who has my best interest at heart, not her best interest. Mm -hmm. And modeling those conversations, modeling those friendships, I think is a really important thing to do with your kid as well. So lots of conversations about why they're friends, lots Mm -hmm. of conversations about, you know, what if so-and-so said, you know, come on, just try it because often kids who do drugs and alcohol want their friends to do them too. Um, just to keep them company and not feel as bad about their own use. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that was true for me. It was easier for me to drink if people around me were drinking. Right. Um, so having those conversations often, um, that's going to be really helpful mm-hmm. as well. And just okay. keeping a close eye on, a closer eye than you might. And mm-hmm. for me, as the person who wrote Gift of Failure, this is an awfully delicate line to walk. Mm-hmm. Um I would have I would be more likely to keep an eye on that relationship, a close eye on that relationship right. and then I might invite them to our house instead of going out other places. Right. Right.
0: Okay, that that makes a lot of sense and I think it is important to to keep an eye as you were mentioning because you do want to you do want to get to know the people that your children are friends with. You do want to see mm-hmm. them in action. And you know, just to piggyback what you're saying that you know, when we're asking what you're getting out of a relationship, you're also asking about what you hope to get out of relationships with, with friends. And what do you, you know, how do you define a friend? What words come to mind? Do that, does that person fulfill those, that definition that you've put forth? Because when it comes out of their own mouth, it's hard to argue with. So you talk about having rules and expectations about drugs and alcohol. And, and I don't know that many have really voice those in definitive ways. And you've mentioned that too in your book where one person like had really like three very, you know, definitive rules. But most people I, I wouldn't say are here are your rules about, you know, right. and here's my expectations right. about alcohol and drugs. They may just kind of talk about it here and there, but not really as pointed as that. So what would you encourage uh people people say around rules and expectations in their households Um, if children are present what could be some rules and expectations that they are more pointed about
1: so the research is really clear in terms of house rules that um, parents who give a consistent message of no not until it is legal for you to drink that um that those kids, they have, fewer kids will go on to have a substance use disorder during their lifetime. Again, correlation causation issues there, but still, the research is really really clear on that. The problem with um, permissive messages about drinking, and I'm not talking like, oh, have your friends over and have a keg here because then everyone will be safe. Although I, this happens all the time. Of too. course it does. You know, yes. I might as well you might as well drink in my house and I'll take all the keys because therefore you're safe. Not only can you get in a lot of legal trouble for that because it is illegal. Um, but parents who give a message of you can have a sip here and there you can have a little of your own wine you know parents have this romantic version vision in their minds of sort of the the european parents. yes so, they do talk about parents, that yes right parent kid, one what we want is to raise kids for whom alcohol is no big deal they could take it or mm-hmm. leave it right we want kids who know how to drink moderately the problem is is we can't teach moderate drinking in the way we think we can and not only does it not not only does it being permissive in your parenting and giving kids sips and that kind of thing actually raise the chances that your kids will have a substance use disorder during their lifetime the european myth is just that it is a myth Mm. europe has the highest level of alcoholism in the world Mm. so much so that for example france where we tend the, the sort of the core country we tend to romanticize realized just a couple of years ago, oh my gosh, we've got a real problem here. We need to really look at our weekly guidelines for how many drinks are healthy and how many are not healthy because mm-hmm. we seem to have a really bad problem here. So it, it's, and I bought into this completely. I was a huge, I bought in big to the European myth mm-hmm. and it just is not true. The exact opposite is true parents who have permissive, uh, uh, attitudes around drinking before age 21 or using drugs before adulthood, um, their kids are more likely to use Mm. and have problems, not just use, but have problems during Mm -hmm. their lifetime. So, Mm. you know, I think it's important to bust that myth wide open. Um, and a lot of parents use it. And I think it's, um, I I think part of it comes down to this fatalistic kids are going to drink. Here's the thing I would love parents to think about. Adolescents are in the second of two really massive reconstruction, uh, cognitive development, structuring in the brain where the uh, lower parts of the brain are hooking up to the higher parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. This stuff is massive that what's going on during adolescence in the brain, equaled only by what's going on in the brain during um, gestation and the first two years of life. Mm -hmm. Just as the powers that be, the experts in this stuff, health experts say there is no safe amount of alcohol during Mm -hmm. pregnancy. There's also no safe amount of alcohol really in in a toddler, you know, in a zero to two year Mm -hmm. old, we wouldn't give kids that age alcohol. However what we're talking about in the adolescent brain is equal to that level of mm. brain plasticity, of vulnerability to things in the environment. So if we wouldn't drink while we're pregnant and we wouldn't give kids zero to two years old two year old alcohol, we all should, should be thinking about our how normalized we have come to uh to view drinking during adolescence because it turns out that we also overestimate the number of kids that drink it is not a foregone conclusion that kids will drink during high school it's also not a foregone conclusion that kids will want to drink during college Mm -hmm. which sounds just bananas to us viewers of you know i grew up the animal house was popular Mm -hmm. when i was little Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to think of it in that terms. I'm not saying you can't drink or have drugs ever. What I'm saying is during adolescence, your brain is so vulnerable. And in the book, I go into the very specifics of what gets harmed and by why, uh, and by what substances and why it's happening. Um, And that that information alone right there on how the brain works and why it's uniquely vulnerable to drugs and alcohol and the harms they cause during adolescence is really powerful ammunition for helping our kids know from a place of knowledge and facts and data why they shouldn't drink until they're older.
0: So given that you just said that, we're sort of coming upon the area of the the podcast where I'm just going to give you a couple of like real short answer, you know, rapid yeah. fire type things. And Got I, it. I, and given that, given that you just mentioned those statistics, I would love to know, because you, you talk about like you want to have some facts in your back pocket about drugs right. and alcohol abuse. What would you say are the three pieces of information that you would want us as parents to be able to pull out of our back pocket right. and be prepared when our when we're talking about drugs and alcohol.
1: So the big one is you know your brain is developing and while there are things that you can drink and consume and and take as drugs when you're older that might not have a really big risk of big uh, harm in your brain it does during adolescence for example um, you process alcohol differently in your body when you're an adolescent you're less likely to feel the negative effects or to understand really how drunk you are than you would if you drank the same amount of alcohol when you're a little bit older you're less likely to have the Negative consequences but the problem is is that not having those negative consequences is a really scary indicator of possible future problems another example is um, marijuana marijuana in the adult brain isn't that risky come after me, whatever. It isn't that risky. In adolescence, however, the receptors that we're operating with when we talk about marijuana are in an area of the brain called the hippocampus, mm. which is where memory is formed, especially mm. emotional memories. All of those really vivid, nostalgia-tinged, you know, rosy uh, memories from adolescence, those are all processed in the hippocampus. And our ability to retain information and, and create short-term memories, that also happens there. So. If your kid has goals around, you know, whether it's next Friday's math test or someday I want to be an architect or, you know, whatever, I'm going to have to know how to, you know, be able to memorize a lot of information, they're doing a lot of damage to that specific part of the brain. And kids who smoke a lot of pot have much smaller hippocampi than kids who don't smoke Hmm. pot. So there are very real consequences to drug and alcohol use during adolescence that just don't exist later on in life. Hmm. So there's that. I think on helping kids understand that they are—it is the nature of—it is human nature to overestimate through this thing called Mm. pluralistic ignorance how much other people care about drugs and alcohol, and we tend to overestimate it. And so it's probably likely that you're overestimating how much your friends care. And here are some examples in the book. I, I give all kinds of examples. I think the last thing to really think about is to come at it from the perspective of I'm not telling you that you shouldn't use drugs and alcohol because I'm some, you know, like uptight, you know, because I said so parent. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you this because one of the reasons that, especially the reason that uh, kids drink that is more likely to get them in trouble down the road is because they don't feel like they're enough. Mm. And I want you to feel like you are enough. Mm. I, the drink that I miss the most is the one I used to have before I went to the dinner party or the Mm -hmm. whatever cocktail Mm -hmm. party. So that i could feel like i was enough so that i didn't feel like an imposter when i was going in the door so that i could ease that social anxiety Mm -hmm. but i quote um chris herron in the book Mm -hmm. who's a wonderful resource um uh, for drug and alcohol prevention and he talks about the fact that you know we tend to talk a lot about the worst day and my worst day drinking was pretty bad Mm -hmm. but we don't tend to do a lot of talking about the first day Mm -hmm. the reason the kid feels like he can't be you know enough in front of his friends, or like Brian, that he needs the approval of these kids because he is not enough. Mm-hmm. And if your if your kid understands that you're not coming this from a place of just being a super uptight, you know, um, parent who you know is a teetotaler themselves, coming at it from the perspective of because you are enough, and I want you to know that in your sober mind, without having to resort to taking something so that you could feel mm-hmm. like you're enough.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and I work with. Thousands of kids a year, and went over and over again, that's what kids want: is to feel like they are enough. Mm-hmm. That they, that they are enough for us as parents, and that they are enough for their friends, mm-hmm. and that they deserve. there out there in the world as a presence
0: yes and you talk so much about the need for connection and belonging Mm -hmm. especially in brian's case and i also love the the statistic that we mentioned in the beginning where you know when people are when your child is like everybody's doing it and you're Mm -hmm. able to pull out well actually it's only a quarter Mm -hmm. of kids um and it's
1: much fewer the numbers numbers are so i mean some of the numbers are a little scary when it comes to young kids you're like oh my gosh i didn't know anyone was doing it at this age But on the other hand, some of the numbers like weren't as bad as I sort of my worst case scenario was. So helping kids know that is really important.
0: Okay, give us this the end of this sentence for me. If we if we want to raise healthy kids in a culture of dependence, we must
1: help them help them have a voice, help them feel that they are good enough, give them a sense of self-efficacy so that they feel like they have earned their place in the world and they can go out into the world and do things and be effective. Mm -hmm. That's honestly at the center of all Mm -hmm. of this.
0: Okay. Give us your top tip. What do you want us to walk away with after listening to this podcast so that we can best talk to our kids about drug and alcohol use and abuse and so that we can help uh, help them to to talk about it with us and inoculate them when they are in the state of of being with other people who might be questioning their choices.
1: So most of the solutions, um, if kids end up having problems, are going to come from their family. But it also starts um, the it starts with the family and mm-hmm. it starts with having a really clear eye um, regarding your own use your siblings' use, your parents' use, your aunts and uncles' use, because there is so much shame and secrecy around this. And the more we can have a really clear eye about not only whether or not we use but why we're using you know if we're part Mm. of that whole like mommy wine culture and we say Mm. you know i have had such a hard day i have earned this Mm. if we're we're, you know if we're giving our kids the impression that our earned glass of wine at the end of the day is what allows Mm. us to cope with being you know a mom Mm. or having to go to work then what we're teaching them is to use drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. So I think we have to start with ourselves. And, mm. and that's I hate to say that because
0: that's the hardest part. Of course. Can't we just have like <laughs> but, the easy yeah. button there? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I would love to be, just be able to
1: throw the hypocrisy switch and yeah. you know be able to do whatever the heck I want. And and can't you just give us, just us a couple of
0: statistics me, and we can just move on from there? You I know, know
1: exactly. Yeah. Maybe just you know yeah that would be so much easier. It, <laughs> it doesn't work be. that way. It would
0: really. be. Yes exactly. Anytime we have to bring ourselves in it and then have to actually do some right. work on our, our our innermost selves just like
1: I can oh, tell you this though the tough. more I talk about this and the more every time I'm up on stage doing an event for you know talking gift to failure stuff um, and I mention that I'm in recovery uh, and it I mention it during a very specific part of the talk mm-hmm. and Every single time I mentioned that I'm in recovery, I get an email, someone reaches out, mm. someone comes up to me at the end of the talk and thanks me for mm-hmm. being honest about it yes. um, because they have a relation or they're worried or whatever. And the more we talk about it, this is the whole Brene Brown thing. The more we talk about this, yes. the more we banish the secrets and shame, the easier it becomes for other people to also be able to talk about it. And that's why I'm yammering constantly about the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm an alcoholic,
0: it's Mm -hmm. it's,
1: it's what, it's what I am, and it's a really important part of what I am, and it's what has led me to today, and I'm, I'm grateful, I'm really grateful for it in the end.
0: Yes, it, it's, it is appreciated, and, you know, just as, as, peers can have great influence on us in negative ways. They also can have great influence on us in positive ways. And you're just Mm -hmm. mentioning one that is, you know, when we're brave, when we come forward, when we speak honestly and authentically, then other people feel like they have permission to do the same. So give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book and the work you're doing?
1: Everything is at Um, I tend to hang out a lot at Twitter just because I, uh, Twitter's really fun if you're in education because there's so many teachers there. So I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm at Leahy over at tw- on Twitter and at TeacherLehi over on Instagram, but everything's at JessicaLehi.com.
0: Perfect. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about your personal story, your insights, your strategies, you know, how to talk to kids about these difficult topics. They are so important it is a great time to talk about this and you've given us some really good tools so thank you again for being thank on the show you.
1: i i like i said i love talking to people who really get and and just enjoy being around especially adolescents because uh, they're just a hoot and they're mm. so much fun and they're so smart and capable if we just give them some
0: credit i agree with that thank you very <laughs> much that is so well said yes <laughs> Well, I've got my takeaways, and sweet friends, I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. You can go up onto Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin, also on Instagram at Silverman. If you love this podcast like I did and you know how Jess's fabulous statistics, strategies, tips, all the things she provided were helpful to you, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people will learn about her outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit DrRobinSilverman.com so many great podcasts up are there and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well along with the statistics and of course all of the links that jess also talked about i look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together and please remember even on the days when you fall short you've got this you're here you're getting the information you need I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps you haven't had these discussions yet. Perhaps your child tried to tell you something and you had a comment. You brushed it under the rug or you didn't talk about it. That's okay. You can bring it out now. You don't have to just say, oh, I, well, that, that moment's over. No, bring it out now. Say it differently. Do it. Do it now. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, Please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.